Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here. Thanks so much for coming. So I have the honor of kicking off our panel today with a framing discussion that's going to address why household decision making matters for resilience, why resilience programs might care about what happens inside the household, and what are some ways we can measure this? And this is based on um, insights from working with the bridge program that Audrey leads, um, talking with program managers that piloted um, a household decision-making tool in three countries. Um, so let's begin. Um, the, our classic kind of standard USA definition of resilience here, the ability of people, households, communities, countries, and systems to mitigate, adapt to, and recover from shocks and stresses in a manner that reduces chronic vulnerability and facilitates inclusive growth. I promise I won't do more reading in the rest of this presentation. But you can see here at the center of this definition is ability. And part of what we're doing today is questioning what goes into ability. Um, we see decision making as really essential to this. Um, it's decision making and the power to negotiate for your preferred ways of mitigation, adaptation, um, recovery from shocks and stresses um, really depends on um, your bargaining power within the household, community, and other institutions. Um, and we care about decision making because even within households, people have different power, different preferences, different levels of knowledge. Um, and so there's more often than not a negotiation between competing and sometimes coinciding interests within that household. So this is a partial image of our GCAN framework that integrates, that shows linkages between gender, climate change, and nutrition. Um, we also use this to think about gender and resilience. So in the red dotted box here I added, you can see the decision-making context we see again is very central. Um, and just to explain briefly how the top part of this works, um, we imagine that people's, in green, we have resilience capacities. And this filters the range of options that people have available to them to respond to shocks and stresses. But in order to mobilize those capacities, we see it as crucial to have bargaining power, negotiation power within the institutions that people live and work to pursue those, those options. And um, because negotiation happens in a, in a household, if women have less bargaining power, what are the implications? Um, this can create household decisions that don't reflect their interests and can have negative consequences for their well-being and also their resilience capacities. And I think it's important to keep in mind that households are not intact forever. They're dynamic, they're changing, they separate. And we need to think about if we want to be kind of reinforcing women's dependency on households and relationships or giving them the option if they need to, to um, have their own resilience if the relationship separates and have the option to leave abusive conditions. Actually, I'll just stay here for one more slide. So just to make this a little bit more concrete, the types of decisions that we're interested in really runs the gamut. Um, you could essentially make the argument that many, most household decisions matter for resilience. Um, but these are things like resource allocation, which household members um, you know, are, have their education or their health invested in, um, decisions about migration, mobility, even things like you know, this is often an important decision. Who gets to participate in a training? Do women get to participate in a group or training? This is not an individual, an individual choice many, much of the time. So what are the consequences of 
inequitable household decision-making for resilience. We see this as ha happening at multiple scales. Um, let's take it as an example, like I just mentioned, um, a husband is not comfortable with his wife participating in a producer group. And so he forbids her from attending. There's a discussion. She's not able to negotiate to participate. Um, at the individual level, we can see missed opportunities for women's own individual resilience capacities in terms of her expanded social capital, access to new information, new productive practices, um, and potentially a source of income that she might control herself. Then at the household level, this also has repercussions in terms of a missed opportunity for um, household risk and income diversification. And even at the community level, if we then invert the example, um, and we imagine that women were able to build power through a producer group and, and other husbands were also supportive, um, this could be a, a way that they build collective power and negotiate for um, women's rights to water, for example, or um, access to land within the community. So we can see that household decision-making has implications at these multiple scales. And it's not just a, a private thing within households. And this should be, could be coming clear, but just to underscore this, the, we kind of think about three different types of value that this offers for resilience programs. There's intrinsic value for women's empowerment, right, to strengthen her ability to bargain for her own resilience capacities and well-being and avoid harm. Um, and then there's also instrumental value to leverage women's contributions to resilience at these different scales. And there's also a program efficacy logic of really thinking through, are women able to participate and benefit from the programs as we intend? And, and also learning how we can secure men's support as gatekeepers. So I'll briefly just talk about three key reflections that we have from our work um, working with, with Bridge and Mercy Corps from developing this household decision-making tool. Um, the, just a brief overview of the tool is that it's um, uh, administered to men and women in the same household, and it's asking about a range of questions, range of decisions that are relevant for resilience, who makes the decision. But we also added some other things that I'll talk about in a second, and I'll let Audrey go into more detail on the, the tool itself. Um, so I think we see this tool as really valuable for identifying concrete levers of change, and one thing that's really critical for that is men's attitudes. So this is, um, there's a lot to be learned from asking men why they might exclude women from certain decisions, what decisions they think women might make if they did have more input, really understanding what their beliefs, fears, and conceptions are of, of decision-making within the household. And it also can help identify where are their decisions that they might be more open to increasing women's involvement. And these are things that can directly go into household dialogue approach or gender training. Um, Second is that information is really powerful. So we found it important to also ask about information sharing within the household in this tool. Um, access to information can suddenly put a decision on the agenda when before it was off limits for discussion. So when in, in Nepal, Mercy Corps encouraged transparent household budgeting as part of their intervention. And suddenly women were able to see how men were making personal expenses and hold them accountable and, and question if these were really strategic or not. Um, and then the last thing is that we get questions, you know, what's the best type of decision making? If we're measuring it, are we trying to be normative about what type of decisions we want people to make? Um, I think this varies very much between families and between decisions. Um, we often think of joint decisions as a sign of cooperation, and it may be in many cases, but especially in strained relationships, um, there are many decisions that women 
prefer to make individually. So think about like keeping a savings account private so that she can retain control over it. So cooperation, uh, sorry, a joint decision making is not always the best, depends on the starting point. Um, but on the other hand, uh, for some decisions that women make individually, she, uh, she might actually prefer to engage her husband more. So these might be decisions about childcare. So understanding women's aspirations and the starting point really matters instead of kind of a blanket um, approach about what decisions are best. And finally, I just want to leave with three um, kind of concluding reflections that we have from this work um, and to, you know, that I look forward to sparking discussion with. So I think, first of all, we need to be careful to recognize that when we're measuring household decision, household, sorry, when we're measuring household resilience, this reflects household decisions and the preferences of the powerful, right? It doesn't necessarily reflect individual resilience, and there can often be trade-offs within there. And then bargaining power is a key aspect of resilience that people need to be able to negotiate for the types of responses they want to see. Um, but there's a huge gender gap in this. Um, so if we're interested in understanding gender differences in resilience, this is a key thing to be studying. And then finally, the way that we study it, you know, the other exam examples I gave of more contextual information that helps to make sense of where decision making might move, this is really critical for getting at those levers of change that can be applied for programming. Um, and help, you know, change men's attitudes, help build women's confidence, and um, shift the balance of power within the household towards greater equity and resilience. Now I'm going to turn it over to Greg, who's going to speak briefly about how the pro-WEA um, measures household decision making.